Good morning. For those of you who I don't know yet, I'm Melissa. I'm a member of the teaching team here at Ignite. And with Pastor Russ and his family on vacation for the next couple of weeks, we will actually be up here giving the message to you today and for the next couple of weeks. So so we start today. I want you to just imagine with me for a minute that you are a super successful business owner. You have just a thriving business, right? This is great. So you are happily married. You have five beautiful children, and things are going so, so well for you. When your friends ask you how things are, you say, my life is so full. It is amazing. But then, unexpectedly, your son dies of an illness. And shortly after that, a fire destroys your business. Your family is wiped out financially. Slowly, you begin to recover, and so you plan a trip with your family and say, okay, we need to do something. But the day you plan to leave, business keeps you back, and so you send your spouse and your four daughters ahead and say, I will see you guys soon. But a tragic accident claims the life of hundreds of travelers that day, and among them are your four daughters. How would you react? Better yet, how would the world tell you to react? Most likely, our world today would tell you that your feelings of emptiness are justified and warranted, and you deserve something more. And then the world might try to convince you that there is a list of things that will make you feel full again. And given all that's happened to you, it might feel pretty tempting to to succumb to some of those temptations or even all of them. And yet, Horatio Spafford, the man who experienced every one of those tragedies in his life in just a few short years, wrote the words, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. Those words are indicative of a life that is full. So how is it that a man who lost his son, lost his business, lost his four daughters, lost almost everything, could possibly say that things were well with his soul and that his life was full? How is it that Horatio and maybe even people close to you who have experienced such heartache and suffering that by the world's standards they should be defeated and empty are not swayed and continue to live in a way that is so full? And more importantly, how can we learn to live like that? So we're in the fourth week of our series, Full in a World That's Empty, and today we'll be focusing on a section in chapter two of the book of Colossians, a section of Paul's letter that lays out all the reasons for why we can live our best life despite what the influences of the world are telling us. But before we dig into Colossians, I want to step back a couple of books in the Bible and look at a verse in the book of John. In chapter 10, verse 10, we read words directly from Jesus. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Friends, there's one thing that's certain about life, and that is that it's uncertain. One minute you might have these great plans for your life, and the next minute those plans go up in flames. One minute you might be surrounded by loved ones, the next moment you might be all alone. Those things are literally what happened to Horatio Spafford. And I'm pretty confident that there are many of you sitting here who, like me, look at your lives and see things that have happened that in a million years you never expected to happen. So how in the midst of it all can we live lives that are full? If we look at that verse, Jesus gives us the answer right here. It's him. Look at this verse again. I have come that they... 
And when Jesus says, I have come that they, he's saying, I have come that you, that you may have life and you may have it to the full. But Jesus also warns us that there is a real enemy that wants to prevent that life of fullness. And one of the most effective tactics to do that is to exploit the everyday pressures that we're feeling in our lives and to bring in outside influences and having the world tell us things until it's pressed down so hard on us that the fullness that we're promised by Jesus here is not so easily remembered. And that's what was happening to the people excuse me, from the church in Colossae, they were distracted by things that they were seeing and hearing around them, and it was making them doubt what they knew to be true. And as they doubted what they knew to be true, Paul was saying, you guys are at risk to miss out on this fullness of life that Jesus has promised you. And so when he heard about this, he wanted to do something. So the section of the letter that we're looking at today is where he's reminding them what's at stake if we look more at the world than we do at Jesus. So we're going to take a look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15 today. You can follow along in your Bible, on the Ignite app, or on the screens. We're going to go through the whole passage, and then we'll unpack some things from that. So again, chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority." In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the power and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. There's a lot to unpack here. But at the highest level, Paul is telling the people that he gets it. He knows that it's easy to be lured or veered away from, from what they know. He knows that life gets hard and it gets messy. And in those moments, people are going to say things to you that sound really, really good on the surface and are really, really easy to believe. But what he also reminds them is that if they're really searching for quality and quantity to fill their lives and they already have the best and the most in Jesus. And what he's telling them is still relevant for us today. So I first want to start digging a little deeper into the, into the caution that Paul calls out in verse 8. So in verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty defeat, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. The Colossians were struggling with being drawn in by truths that others were telling them that weren't, in fact, true. So Paul's saying, hey, guys, 
I know this sounds good. I know that what you're hearing sounds really, really good. But don't let your guard down. Don't let these half-truths saturate your mind and your heart. Because if you do, the results are going to be devastating. There's a really fine line between what separates true wisdom and false wisdom. And this isn't the first time that we see this happen in the Bible. So this isn't a problem that just came about with the Colossian church. In fact, it first appears early on. In fact, in the first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis. So thousands of years before Paul warned the Colossians of the dangers of truth that is not from God, Adam and Eve faced this same challenge. So God had given Adam and Eve everything they could ever want in the Garden of Eden. He gave them a full life. Everything was available to them. Everything except one thing. God had warned both Adam and Eve that they were not to eat the fruit from the tree of, the, from the tree of good and evil because the consequence would be death. And so you remember that verse in John that we talked about just a couple of minutes ago. There is a real enemy that wants to deceive us. And there was a serpent in the garden, and he had plans to convince Adam and Eve otherwise. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 4 and 5, we read words from the serpent. You will, cert- you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The enemy knows that the best deceptions for us, the best ways to lure us away from God's truth, is to tell us something that sounds true but isn't quite true. It's what we call half-truths now. It could be partially true. It could be truth but not the whole truth. It might also incorporate some forms of deception such as a double meaning. But in all cases, it's going to make us second guess what we know. And so that's what the serpent was doing for Adam and Eve here. He was making them second guess what God had told them. He made claims that were attractive. You know, he says to them, you'll be like God. And Adam and Eve being human are like, okay, this sounds good. And God did promise me everything. Um, And so what this made them do was really second guess whether or not God was really giving them the full life that they had promised. They thought, well, couldn't it be fuller? And so if we think about some of the pressures that we get from the world, we hear these same kinds of half-truths saying, couldn't our life be fuller if we just did this? So in our passage in Colossians, when we go back to here, Paul's warning the people again, don't fall victim to these half-truths. In, in the verse that we took a look at, he specifically references philosophy and empty deceptions as these type of, tre- of teachings that were confusing to the believers at the time. Now, it's important to note that Paul wasn't against all philosophy. And this, when we say philosophy, we're not talking about Socrates and Descartes and any of those philosophers you might have heard um, about in your studies. But what he's talking about is false philosophy, things that are not aligned to truth. So he's saying, um, be careful. Be careful of those false philosophies. Be careful of those truths that are empty, meaning without value, without basis, without power, that they're foolish. It was a threat for Adam and Eve. It was a threat for the Colossians. It's a threat for us now. And these are, as you look at these things, these are small incremental steps that are luring people away from God's truth and into what we have as a kind of a self-created truth. 
And that, again, is this, what, this is what Paul was warning the Colossians about. So think about the game of telephone. If I started a truth right here with Aaron and asked him to pass this truth all the way through the church, what's going to happen to the truth by the time it hits that back corner here? It's going to be a little bit different. It's going to be altered from its original form. There might be some essence of how it started, but for the most part, it's going to be a little bit changed. And now each of us is sitting here in our seats with our own version of what we believe is truth. And that's going to come out in our actions. We live according to what we believe is true. And so again, Paul is warning the Colossians to make sure that your belief system is rooted in the right places. This might even be more relevant today as we live in a time where truth has become more and more diluted and even more subjective. As a culture, we want truth that fits our reality and that will speak to us where we are right now. So whatever's going on in our life, we want to align ourselves with the truth that's going to make us feel the best. I'm going to take a look at a couple of statements that I found um, that, that really communicate how we view truth as a society now. So the first one is this. According to a Gallup poll, 82% of college students say they believe in no absolute truth. 82%. No absolute truths. So what this is saying is that we've really become an anything-goes society. Right and wrong isn't really based on any kind of absolutes, but it's on my individual opinion. If I think it's right or I think it's wrong. If Chris thinks it's right or Chris thinks it's wrong. We think that all of that's the truth. That's the truth that we're operating on. We've become a nation that's being led by what is popular. We've let evening news or what celebrities believe or what we hear about on social media form our value system and our truths. The second thing is this, and I thought this one was super interesting. The word post-truth was the word of the year in 2016. This has become so permeating in our society that we've actually named this phenomena, post-truth. And what this means is that facts are less influential in shaping our opinions than emotional appeals. So again, that's saying if something sounds good or feels good, then we're going to believe it. So again, we are society, we as a society are veering away from what's true. And again, this is what Paul was warning the Colossians of in his letter. Don't veer away from what is true. Interestingly, author C.S. Lewis hinted at this very thing in his book, The Screwtape Letters, which was published in 1942. And so there I have a quote from this book, which I think is just so fascinating. So this book is a fascinating account of um, an enemy really training his nephew on how to lure people away from the truth, how to lure people away from God. And so what he says is, your man has been accustomed ever since he was a boy to having a dozen incompatible philosophies dancing about together in his head. He doesn't think of doctrines as primarily true or false, but is academic or practical, outworn or contemporary, conventional or ruthless. Jargon, not argument, is your best ally in keeping him from the church. Don't waste time trying to make him think that materialism is true. Make him think it is strong or stark or creative or courageous. That is the philosophy of the future. That's the sort of thing that he cares about. So again, 
right here in this book, published in the 1940s, we're saying, hey, man is so, man and women are so easily swayed. Make it sound good, and we can get them to believe anything. False truth isn't a new problem, but it's one that comes with a solution. So Paul, again, is telling the Colossians to watch out for these false teachings, and he reminds them that a worldview that's centered on anything other than Jesus is centered on death, or on is centered on self and is a dead-end street. The imagery that Paul was using of these false teachers carrying the congregation away is one that's into into this slavery of falsehood. So what he's saying is that they're going to be lured away by these new truths, and then they're going to be slaves to what is false. And so the truth is, the truth of this is that lies and false teachings place us in bondage. Once we buy into false truths, teaching that is, of, that is not of God, once we go down that path, we'll get off track. And then we get lost in deception and it becomes harder and harder to come back around. Because what we've done is we've created this slippery slope for ourselves. We said, well, this is okay. I could align with this. And if I've aligned with this, well, I can align here. And then I can align here, and more and more, we're moving away from center. We're moving away from what that ultimate truth is. And the world tries to trick us into these really good-sounding arguments that have the appearance of truth, but they're really, in fact, designed to harm us. And again, if we go back to what Paul was saying about these arguments, he's saying it's false when it's based in human wisdom. The ultimate truth is given to us by the authority of Christ, and that will never change, and that should always be our barometer. Everything that we see, everything that we hear should always be measured up against that barometer of the gospel. Now, don't get me wrong. I love reading books and hearing messages from other Christian authors and teachers. And if you ask me, I could give you a long list of people I think that you should read, that I think that you should learn from. What Paul is saying here is that not to listen to those teachers or even learn from them, because remember, Paul himself was a teacher. But what he's saying is if we hear things that make us wonder or question our beliefs, then we have to test it, and we have to test it at the source. So again, if I'm reading a book by an author that I love, and there's something that makes me think, ah, that's not quite, it doesn't quite line up with what I think I know, My source should not be Google. My source should not be Wikipedia. My source should be God's word, and that's what I should be measuring those things up against. And that's the truth that Paul wants us to hold on to, and that's the truth that he wants us to maintain the integrity of. Because when we know what's real, we can stand on that truth, and we won't fall prey to what is not. And so Paul did not want to see the Colossians give up on what they already knew. He didn't want to see them miss out on this fullness of this life that Jesus has promised. So he uses the rest of this section to remind them that they've already started well. And they need to just keep going. They were doing well spiritually, but they had to be on guard against these things that the world was telling them and remember what Christ had done for them. And it's the same for us. And really, friends, the only way that we can be deceived or captured or taken into this slavery of a false teaching is if we feel like something is lacking in our life right now. If we feel something is missing, then it's much easier to fall into these false teachings. And that's really the heart of Paul's message. He's saying, you have what you need. 
So in the time that we have remaining, we're going to take a look at three proof points that Paul used for the Colossians, three ways that he is reminding them of the truths that they already know, three ways that they can use what they know from the gospel of Jesus as a barometer to test everything else that they're hearing about these false teachings. And holding on to these truths will help them resist that. And it'll help us embrace the truth that Jesus is all we need for our worldview and for a life that is full. So the first thing, Paul tells the Colossians and he tells us, we are already full in him. So as we go back to the first uh, verse in this section that we're looking at today, Paul says, so then just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him. So earlier in Colossians, in the first chapter, Paul had already said to them, we want to walk in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. We want to bear fruit. We want to increase in our knowledge of God. So what he's saying is conduct yourself in a life and your life in a way that honors Jesus. He wants to see them living out their faith. And he's saying, hey, you're already there, friends. Stay the course. And so there's two metaphors used in this passage that I love to give us a picture and just a great reminder of where we already are with Jesus. And the first is this idea of rooted. As every gardener knows, which I am not, but I do understand the science behind gardening, plants depend on their roots for, for nurture and for sustenance. The roots are underground, they're invisible to what we can see, but they're absolutely essential to the well-being of this plant. So rooted in him gives us this picture of this tree. We are this tree, we are firmly planted in him, getting the nutrients and the water that we need to grow and to be healthy. Trees with strong roots can withstand storms that blow against it and and endure times of drought because of that strong root system. So think back to Horatio Spafford at the beginning of this message. Here's an example of a man who was rooted in Christ, no matter what was happening around him. The death of his son, the destruction of his business, the death of his daughters, he remained rooted in Christ. And he was rooted in Christ no matter what was happening, no matter if it was good or no matter what it was bad. Much of that root system also depends on the soil where the roots are rooted. So if the soil has the right amount of moisture and nutrients, the the roots are going to get exactly what it needs. If not, the roots are helpless and unable to support the life that it needs and the plant will die. When we genuinely trust in Christ, God roots us in him, but we need to continually sink more roots into him and not into the things of this world. It's so easy for us to sink our roots into something that we read on Facebook that sounds really good or sink our roots into a teaching of a, of a, popular, of a popular person. It's so easy to sink our roots in here, but Paul's saying, no, don't sink your roots there. Sink your roots in Christ. Our roots should always be in him, not in another source. Paul tells the Colossians that they don't need to worry about the spiritual soil where their roots are rooted because he knows that they as a church are already rooted in Christ where the spiritual resources are infinite. They will always get exactly what they need exactly when they need it. Whether times are good or times are bad, they can depend on those roots to give them the life support because they're solidly planted. So the second picture here is this idea of being built up in him. 
This is really a picture of a building under construction and focuses on this steady progress towards completion. If you've watched a building under construction or as you've driven by different construction sites, there's times that you can look at it and it's really evident what's happening. The frame goes up, the roof goes on, they put windows in. And other times you might drive by and say, you know what, did that career even work this week? What's going on here? But it's at those times that they were working inside on the things that you couldn't see, like the wiring or the plumbing or the things that are essential for a finished building to function properly. When we're built up in Christ, sometimes those changes are obvious. Sometimes people can see from the outside what's happening. But more often, the Lord is steadily working inside us to continually build us up, to build us in his knowledge, to make us more in his image. And these things are just as necessary. So when Paul tells the Colossians that they're built up in Christ, he's saying that they are handiwork of a master builder. Paul's telling them that they can be assured of having this sturdy foundation and strong walls and solid roof and sound design that's continually being enhanced and improved. So that first truth where we can rest our, rest our minds, rest our hearts, and be confident that our life is full is this one. We're already full in him. The second is that we can live a life that is full because of him. Verse 9 and 10 from, Col- from chapter 2 in Colossians states, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. What Paul's saying here is that because of who Christ is, we have everything We have everything that we need for a life that's full. Christ is fully God. If we go back to this, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives. Christ is fully human. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Jesus was human just like us. Jesus is everything that God is. All the divine qualities, all the divine attributes, all the divine essence, there is nothing that can be more than what he already is. The reason why we're not supposed to be swept away by these philosophies and the wisdom of the world is because Christ is everything that we need. We are complete in him. We've been brought to fullness in him and nothing more and need nothing that is offered by these false teachers. In Christ alone, God exhaustively revealed himself, so there's nothing more for us to look for. Remember I said earlier that most of the time that we are deceived by these false teachings, it's it's because we think that we are missing something. And that's why Paul's saying, no, you're not missing anything. Go back to the source. He is everything that you need. Because of Christ, we have come to fullness in life. No emptiness, no restlessness. We already have all the resources we will ever need to live a fruitful, meaningful life. That doesn't mean we're perfect. We'll still have problems. But the growth that we need won't come from any other source or experience but from him. And then finally, Paul reminds us that we live fully with him. So look at verses 13 and 14. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. 
He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. In this reminder of truth, Paul is contrasting our condition before being dead with the transformation that Christ has brought in us, and that is alive and forgiven. There's a little but oh-so-important word in this in this verse here, and that is the word all. He forgave all our sins. God has forgiven every false step, every slip, every offense we've ever committed. Every mistake is taken care of. Every sin is removed. Every one of our sins, all of our sins, even, even the ones that we would call less than terrible, are enough to bring spiritual death. But Christ, through his work on the cross, has covered all of them, and we were brought back to life. We tend to look for forgiveness in all of the wrong places. We see celebrities and people in high positions making public apologies, thinking that's enough for them to be forgiven. Even on a smaller scale, we look to other people to make us feel better about our wrongs, but that's not where it is. Forgiveness doesn't come from other humans, no matter what the world tries to tell us. Forgiveness is only found in God through Jesus. The parables that are used in the Bible um, to, to talk about this, um, they often describe God as the master who erases the debts of the servants, debt that couldn't be repaid. So can you imagine if you had somebody that could cancel all of your debts, your house payment, your car payment, your credit card debt, your student loans, all of it gone, no questions asked. That's a pretty amazing thought, isn't it? And I think the thing that we forget is that has already happened for us in Christ. Our sins are erased with Christ, and not only are they erased, they're forgotten. God will never, ever hold them against us. He will never, ever charge us interest on them. Never will we, will we be asked by God to relive all of those times we hurt other people, all of the times we've done something unkind, all the things that we wish we could have done differently, all the times we've behaved foolishly, and I, for one, am super glad that I will never have to relive all of those things. Those bad parts are gone. They're sunk in the deepest ocean, and if we were to ask God about any of those things, like, remember that one time that I would did this? He would say, I don't remember that. Gone. And that's, again, friends, that's the truth where we need to be aligning our worldviews. We don't need anything else. We don't need the wisdom of the world. We don't need special philosophy or other systems of thought not built up on Christ. We have all we need in him. And again, this is what Paul was reminding the Colossians of as they started to veer, as they started to see things that seemed tempting, that seemed true. He said, guys, no, don't go there. In him, because of him, with him. Those are the only teachings that we need for a life that's full. We don't need watered down versions of those things or things that actually aren't true. We need only those things that are according to Christ. There's an image that's popped up on Facebook recently that I thought was really interesting. It really speaks to where we, where I think we are as a society right now. And it says, um, I think this is on a slide coming up. Yep. So it says, God isn't going to rewrite the Bible for your generation. Stop trying to change scripture when it's written to change you. I feel like if Paul was here today, he might have done a snap or a tweet to the Colossians to say, hey, guys, 
Don't look to these other people because God's word isn't going to change. This is a reminder for us not to compromise, not to turn from Jesus. It's a reminder for us to grasp who Jesus is and what he did for us. It's a reminder that we have what we need. We have access to this full life that we are longing for in the source, in Jesus. So many of you who know me may know that my favorite movie ever of all times is The Wizard of Oz. And at the end of the movie, when Glenda the Good Witch of the North is getting ready to send Dorothy back to Kansas, she asks Dorothy what she's learned. And Dorothy replies with one of my favorite quotes from the whole movie. Dorothy says, I learned that if I ever go looking for my heart's desire again, I won't look past my own backyard. Because if it wasn't there, then I never really lost it to begin with. Friends, I'm telling you, I'm here today to tell you we don't need to search any further than where we are for a life that's full. Jesus offers it again and again to every one of us. He's offering fullness in the good times and the bad times. He is offering a fullness that only he brings. He wants us to have our heart's desire. And he is standing right here in our backyard, in our front yard, next to us, wherever you are. He is standing right here to give it to us. So this week, I'm challenging all of us to test our worldviews. Look at where you're sinking your truths. Is your life full because you're living in the sufficiency of Christ? Or are we still trying to live in the sufficiency of what the world promises us? So let's spend some time going to the source, and if necessary, finding and realigning our truth and our fulfillment. We pray with me. Father God, I just, I thank you. I thank you that you have already come to give us fullness in life. I just, the awesomeness of what you have done for us and what you have promised for us is just sometimes incomprehensible. And I just pray that as we walk out into the world, that we will continue to be rooted in you, that we will be continue, that we will continue to be built up in you, and that we will test everything that we hear against your truth. Father God, you tell us that if we feel that we are lacking in wisdom, that all we need to do is ask you for it. And I just pray over everyone here today that they would have the courage to go to you, to wrestle with you, to just let you reveal yourself to each and every one of them. I just pray that you will give them the fullness that they desire in the good times and the bad times. I pray that you will just remind them that you are there in their own backyard and they don't need to search any further. Father God, again, I just thank you. And I just ask this all in your son Jesus' name. Amen.